Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us for another adventure into history, and this time, the unknown. I was watching a Missing 411 documentary by David Politis on YouTube. He has a lot of them, but this one dealt with missing hunters in North America, and I found it fascinating. For those of you who are not familiar with the Missing 411 series and its author-slash-host, David Politis, it deals with the mountain of research and interviews that former police officer turned paranormal investigator David Politis has put together in order to document the strange missing persons cases which have taken place in North America, mostly in national parks, but in remote areas as well. In the Hunter series I watched, Politis chose that particular category of missing persons because hunters are generally very familiar with the territory in which they're hunting. They're not intimidated by the wild and they know how to handle themselves, and they're armed. Men and women like this generally do not vanish into thin air. Yet, many cases exist, many of them, and they seem to occur more often in what Politis describes as hot spots throughout North America. There are enough cases of hunters vanishing into thin air alone for him to be able to list similarities between the cases. Similarities in landscape, weather, in details of the search, in lack of witnesses as to how they vanished, and many others. For example, in the case of missing hunters, they're either hunting alone or separated from their party when they vanish. There are no signs of foul play. There are no tracks to follow from the last known location they occupied. Dogs can't pick up their scent. Usually, no gear is found by search parties, or when it is, it either turns up months later or in places where there's no rational reason why it should be found there. The areas where disappearances happen are often filled with boulders and rocky areas and outcrops. There's almost always foul weather involved within a day or two after the disappearance. There are often strange lights witnessed in the area or region coinciding with the disappearance. The hunters just vanish. Some headlines appear in the local paper and the incident is forgotten until a similar incident happens in that area, and it often does. In this documentary, Politis gets the testimony of a woman hunter who spent most of the day perched in a deer stand. She related the experience that at one point during the day, the woods all around her became dead quiet. Those of you who spend time outdoors know that if you stay still and listen, the woods are full of sounds, birds singing, squirrels chirruping or chasing up and around trees, all sorts of things. But she said it went dead quiet. That was when she saw a blurred shape up in a tree maybe 50 feet away from her, sort of like an ectoplasm. Maybe human-sized, maybe larger, but not a defined animal or primate. It moved, reaching a part of its bulk across to another tree, to which it transformed its shape, like a huge hunk of jello, reaching across to another tree and then pulling its bulk over across with it. She snapped a picture in the few seconds that she had, but the picture came out as just a weird rainbow of colors. Yet the picture she had taken before and after that one came out fine. She profited in no way from telling her story, and she comes across as a no-nonsense outdoors person who likes to hunt. I found her account fascinating in that she was describing a life form that does not appear to be of this earth. It disappeared after about 30 seconds. Could something like this be making people disappear? I have no idea but the accounts of unusual disappearances fill the archives of state, national, and local investigators, and unexplained disappearances are no joke, especially ones where no foul play is suspected. 
and the stories and sightings of highly unusual creatures are out there and have been for a long time. One of the most perplexing to me is that of the Missouri monster, today nicknamed Momo. M-O, the abbreviation for Missouri, and M-O, the first two letters in monster, which terrified many of the inhabitants of the small, sleepy river town of Louisiana, Missouri, about 25 miles southeast of Hannibal, in 1972. And although not all creature sightings, as well as not all disappearances, are associated with strange lights and even stranger things happening in the sky, the Missouri monster, or Momo sightings, were associated with a large number of strange events, which occurred in that region between 1971 and 1973. It happened nearly 50 years ago now, and it's mostly a forgotten story, but it's definitely a big story that carries all the identifying trademarks of a paranormal event that took place over an extended period of time in an area with maybe 120 miles circumference, at the center of which is the little town of Louisiana, Missouri. In all the paranormal events I've researched, this one stands head and shoulders with the best for the numbers of people that witnessed it, the large area it took in, and the long amount of time during which the phenomena was present. And you'll see all this as the story unfolds. This story will have you asking yourself a lot of questions. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, sit back and buckle your seatbelt, because we've got a great story for you. The first sighting occurred in the summer of 1971 when two women, Joan Mills and Mary Ryan, took a break from driving on Highway 79, also called River Road and sometimes Little Dixie Highway, on their way to St. Louis, Missouri. Around noon, they decided to pull off on a small dirt road which led into a small scenic turnout in Pike County so they could grab a few bites to eat and relax. There was a picnic table there. The place where they stopped was a little north of the small river town of Louisiana, Missouri, where the Mississippi River borders the eastern edge of the state. It's a picturesque area, showing scattered cornfields mixed with vast wooded areas that cover the parkway where they were driving. As they were eating... They began to smell a rank, foul odor, and Joan suggested that it might be a skunk. But as the smell became more distinct, it had a putrid, foul smell that was definitely not skunk. They had begun to pack up their lunch when Joan saw something walking upright from a brushy thicket near them. Joan would, Joan would later tell a writer, I turned around, and this thing was standing there in the thicket. The weeds were pretty high, and I just saw the top half of this creature. It was staring down at us. The creature was tall and walked upright, but it was not human, more ape-like than human. It was making a strange gurgling noise. It had hair all over its body, Mary recalled, yet the face was definitely human. It was more like a hairy human. It was now walking upright toward them with its arms dangling down around its knees. The arms were partially covered with hair, but the hands and palms were hairless, she added. We had plenty of time to see this. It was half ape and half man. The women were terrified, and somehow found the strength to run for their car, to reach it, climb inside, and lock the door. Joan couldn't find her keys or her pocketbook. She finally realized with terror that she had left her pocketbook with her keys in it on the picnic table. The creature, whatever it was, was standing right next to the table. He then began to walk toward the car, and Joan slammed her hand down on the Volkswagen horn ring. The blast caused the creature to jump in the air, then move straight back. She banged on the horn again, but the creature, now realizing that the horn wasn't a danger to him, approached the car again, but then turned and headed back toward the picnic table. It reached down and picked up Mary's peanut butter sandwich, which was still lying on the picnic table, lifted it to its mouth, and gulped it down in one bite. It then started to pick up Joan's purse, but almost immediately flung it to the ground. 
without another look toward the car, the creature then ambled toward the woods and disappeared into the brush. Joan waited a few moments, then jumped out of the Volkswagen and ran for her purse, which she grabbed, and then ran back. Badly shaken, they drove south past the little town of Louisiana, Missouri, to St. Louis, where they took the time to contact the state highway patrol and report what they had seen. They told police that they knew no one would believe their story, but they wanted to have it on record in case anyone else had the same experience. The policeman heard the whole story and dismissed it as a harmless prank. Joan Mills later wrote, We would have difficulty proving that the experience occurred, but all you have to do is go into those hills to realize that an army of those things could live there undetected. For nearly a year, the incident was forgotten. On the afternoon of July 11, 1972, eight-year-old Terry Harrison and his five-year-old brother Wally were playing in the yard behind their house in Louisiana, Missouri, which sits at the base of heavily wooded Marshove Hill. They were playing near some old rabbit pens in the woods next to the Harrison property. That was when they heard a low, throaty growl. Terry turned to look and saw a huge figure standing not 15 feet away from him. There were deer in the woods, and the kids had seen them, but they'd never seen anything like this. It was tall and stood upright like a human, and it was covered with long black hair which obscured its face. It had no visible neck and a large pumpkin-sized head. Its face couldn't be seen because it was covered with hair, plus it reeked with a foul odor. It also had splashes of what looked like blood on its hair, and it was holding a dead, bloody dog in one arm. Terry did what most people would do. He ran toward the house screaming, with his younger brother tracking close behind. Their sister Doris, who was 15, was cleaning the sink in the bathroom. She heard her brother screaming, and when she glanced out the bathroom window, she also saw the creature outside, standing by the hill. She watched as it disappeared into the woods. When reporters questioned her later, she said, It was six or seven feet tall. It stood like a human, but it didn't look like one. In the house, she called her mother at work, locked the door, and the three waited inside the house, scared the beast might return, and worried for their mother. Mrs. Harrison called their father, whose name was Edgar, and told him to get home as fast as he could. Something was very wrong at the house. He was there in 30 minutes, and spent a long time comforting three frightened kids before going out back to search for any signs of what they'd seen. He found some faint footprints in the dust with black hairs around them and a section of flattened-out brush where the creature had been standing. He went back in and asked eight-year-old Terry for a better description. "'It was big and weaving back and forth,' answered Terry. "'It had long black hair hanging all over, and its face was not visible due to all the hair.' He added, "'The dog had red stuff all over it.' When pressed on what type of dog, Terry wasn't sure, nor was he sure it was a dog. He said it had four legs and was covered in black hair just like the creature.' The father couldn't help but wonder if the creature Terry described as a dog was possibly offspring of that creature. That brought the thought that there was a whole colony of those things living on the hill. The woods were thick enough to hide them, he thought, and there was a lot of unoccupied wooded land there. Edgar's dog was in the house. After letting him out, it came back soon, violently ill, and vomited for hours. It finally recovered after a meal of bread and milk. Later that night, Edgar heard noises out back, like something running through the woods and brush. The following day, Edgar enlisted the help of four neighbors to join him in the search of Marzoff Hill, but they turned up nothing. The next night, the same kind of noises were heard out back, 
but a search that day, this time with ten people, failed to turn up anything. On Friday, July 14th, Edgar, who was a church deacon, and his wife, hosted a weekly prayer meeting at their house with about 30 attendees from the local Pentecostal church. Around 9 p.m., after about two-thirds of the guests had left, Edgar was relaxing outside with the remaining guests when they saw several fireballs of light moving from east to west just over the trees in the neighboring yard. They saw two other lights, one white or bluish-white and one green, go down in the vicinity of a nearby abandoned school. The white light appeared first, and the green light appeared about five minutes later. No one could figure out what kind of lights they were. When I read this, I immediately thought of the missing 411 story. Politis had noted that in a number of cases, strange lights had been seen at approximately the time that the people went missing. In the case of one hunter who had disappeared during the afternoon in a wooded section with fellow hunters within a hundred yards of him, strange lights were seen over the area high school at the same time. In fact, the marching band was out practicing, and this was daytime. They saw the strange lights and stopped to watch in awe. This was the same day and general location where the woman out hunting had seen the predator-style shape in the trees. Yes, there were no missing persons involved in this Missouri beast story, but there were strange goings-on, the appearance of a strange life form and very unusual glowing orbs. It makes you wonder. After everyone had left, Edgar Harrison remained outside, strumming lightly on his guitar just for something to calm his nerves, and then stopping to listen. That was when he heard a loud growl. All his senses went on alert. The growl became nearer, and the family heard it as well from inside. They came rushing out of the house and begged their dad to drive them away to safety. Edgar wanted to stay to see what was making the noise, but now with a carload of screaming family members he pulled out of the driveway, only to be met with an amazing sight. He later told the newspaper reporters, Over 40 people were coming toward my house, some of them carrying guns. They had heard the same noise we did. They had also seen the unexplained balls of light. Edgar stopped the car, but before he could talk to his neighbors, his thoroughly frightened wife, who had been staring at the woods, screamed, Here it comes! And the crowd quickly broke up and ran back down the street. Both Harrison and a neighbor called Maxine Miner called the police to report the strange sights and sounds. Chief Shelby Ward took both calls and dispatched two deputies to the scene. Officers John Whitaker and Jerry Floyd went to the Harrison house and searched all around it and behind it in the woods, but saw and heard nothing. When they left, Harrison and a few volunteers grabbed searchlights and headed deeper into the woods on Marzolf Hill to search more thoroughly, and they did, finding a dilapidated old building with its interior reeking of the pungent odor of the beast. He later described the odor as a moldy house smell or garbage smell. It seemed like the home of the beast, but there was nothing there. They spent the next two hours searching the hill, and it was tough going, with trees and tangled undergrowth everywhere, but the beams of their lights couldn't penetrate that far into the darkness. The next day, Harrison packed up his family and moved them to new temporary quarters in a little restaurant cafe that the family owned in the town of Louisiana. The beast sightings continued. Mrs. Clarence Lee called into the police and said that on the same day that the Harrisons had seen the beast, she had heard a terrible growling outside her home. Robert Parsons and his wife also called in with a similar report. A local farmer called in and said that a dog he had given to his daughter had been missing for at least a week and suggested it could have been the one seen being held by the beast. Another town resident, Pat Howard, called in and said he had seen a man-sized creature walking across the road near Marzolf Hill at 5 a.m. on the same day when the Harrison-led searchers were combing the hill. 
The police switchboard was lighting up, and they were taking notes this time, and so was the press, which was sending reporters to cover the story and get interviews. A few days later, on July 18th, two boys were hiking on Marzolf Hill when they saw the creature standing in the woods. There was a foul smell. They said it resembled a bear walking on its hind legs. The boys ran in terror to their homes, and their moms called the police. A woman told reporters at Channel 7 that she had definitely seen a black, long-haired thing cross the highway into Louisiana. Another resident called in and told Chief Ward he had seen the creature near Highway 79 and that it was carrying a dog in its mouth. Others called to report that they had smelled the stench while walking near Marzov Hill. Chief Ward had been trying to tamp down the panic, but he wasn't having any success. He explained that it might be a bear or a prankster, and there was probably nothing to worry about. However, he said, he would organize an official search so they could get to the bottom of all this before somebody got hurt. There were too many people now roaming the woods with guns, and somebody was liable to get shot, he said. On the morning of July 19th, Chief Ward spoke to his assembled search party, which contained eight police officers, Edgar Harrison, four out-of-state reporters, some local volunteers, and state conservation officer Gus Artis, who knew every square foot of that hill and had been placed in charge of the search. Their goal was to either find evidence of the monster or put the town at ease. We want to say that we've made a complete search, he said, and he explained that they would form a line with the men standing 30 feet apart and continue searching until they'd combed every inch of the heavily wood and brush-laden hill. He told them they were looking for anything out of the ordinary. Large footprints, hair, blood, scat, or animal remains. They came across several landowners, some of which encouraged them, another one who told them to get off his land, calling them crazy. They searched all day, but found nothing. The residents were furious. Maxine Miner, who had called the police a few days before, said they should be looking at night, because that's when she had heard the beast growling, around 9.30 p.m. Just hours after the search ended, Harrison and nearly 40 other people heard the beast growling and roaring near George Miner's house on Dougherty Pike Road. Miner's son Lynn said that it might have been a hog gone wild or a wildcat or even a prankster, but he wasn't sure. On July 20th, Richard Crow, a reporter for the Irish Times newspaper in Chicago and Fate magazine, arrived on the scene with Lauren Smith, an attorney from Skokie, Illinois. According to Crow, in the article he later wrote for Fate magazine, they first reported to the police station and were then escorted to the Harrison residence, arriving at about 9.30 p.m., where they found Edgar, his daughter Doris, and her boyfriend Richard Bliss, all of whom were camped out and waiting for something to happen. Edgar's family was stowed away safe at their restaurant in town, while Edgar and others kept watch at their house on Allen Street. Edgar showed the journalist the spot where the boys had seen the creature standing. The journalist, Crow, noted that there was a circular spot in the brush and that the leaves and twigs had been stripped from the branches. Then Harrison and Bliss led them up the hill to where there was an old garbage dump, which appeared to have been recently disturbed. They could see tin cans and bottles which had been dug up and were lying strewn about. Nearby, Harrison pointed out a spot where the graves of two dogs had been dug up and the dog's bones were strewn all over the ground. This creature, whatever it was, was apparently hungry and not too picky about what it was eating. As they progressed further uphill, using their flashlights, they came upon what appeared to be two impressions in the ground. The first was over ten inches long and five inches wide and resembled a large human footprint. The other was five inches long and curved like the print of a hand. Given the dry, hard surface of the dirt where they found the prints, 
Crow estimated it would take a creature of at least 200 pounds to make that kind of impression. Harrison then showed Crow and Smith the abandoned shack where he and the other searchers had smelled the terrible stench just a few days before. There was a pile of leaves and debris in the corner, which appeared to be a sleeping area. Then a powerful whiff of stench reached their noses, as if it had been blown in, and the Harrison's dog, who had come with them, ran yipping away. A minute later they heard a number of dogs barking and howling from the direction of Dougherty Pike Road and the miner's house. The men checked their cameras and scanned the woods with their flashlights, believing that at any moment the creature might come crashing through the underbrush. But nothing happened. They waited another five minutes. The stench disappeared. The group, discouraged, returned to the house and kept watch until 3 a.m. Twice more during that time they smelled the creature stench, but saw nothing. Living outside the town of Louisiana was a 63-year-old man named Ellis Miner, and yes, the Miner family and cousins were numerous in this area. Miner had spent most of his life hunting and fishing in the area and lived close to the river. Miner reported to the papers that on the night of July 21st he was sitting out in front of his house on River Road when his bird dog began to growl. It was one of those growls you hear when a dog senses something dangerous nearby. I know some of you listeners have experienced that, and it's the kind of growl that wakes you right up and makes you pay attention. Something was close by, and probably wasn't friendly. Miner flipped his flashlight in the direction his dog was looking and saw the creature standing in the road not twenty feet away. He said, It was standing there, hair black as coal. I couldn't see its eyes or its face. It had hair covering its face nearly down to its chest. The thing was at least six feet tall with hair that covered its entire body. It was standing upright on two legs in the center of the road. As soon as I threw the light on it, it whirled and took off. It's the first time I've seen an ugly-looking thing like that. Miner added that if the dog hadn't growled, the thing might have crept right through his yard. It seemed to be headed for the river, which runs parallel to River Road, only a short distance from Miner's home. When the flashlight hit it, it turned and ran across the adjacent railroad track and disappeared in the dark woods beyond. The reporter asked what he would have done if the creature had entered his yard and come toward him. Miner answered, I don't know who would have run faster, mere the dog. The next day, a young teen named Timmy McCormick told journalist Crow that he had seen the creature in the woods and had told his mother when he came home, but she had told him not to tell anyone for fear they would think him crazy and shame the family. He wasn't allowed to talk to the police or the reporters, but he thought it was okay to talk to the magazine writer. He also said he wouldn't go into those woods again for anything. On the night of July 29th, Edgar Harrison and a group of brave college students were exploring Marzov Hill. They were standing near the top of the hill when they heard a gunshot from below. They all rushed down the hill toward the sound of the shot and then heard an old man's voice saying, You boys stay out of these woods. The voice seemed to have come from a nearby cluster of trees no more than 20 by 50 feet wide, and they called. They searched the cluster of trees but found no one. The group was stunned. Anyone leaving that patch of trees would have been seen. It was as if it were haunted. Maybe it was. Maybe it was some kind of time warp or altered reality. Where did the old man's voice and gunshot come from? It was clear, and it sounded very close. A few days later, a farmer named Freddie Robbins found a set of unusual footprints on his farm about eight miles south of town. They were roughly oval-shaped and appeared to have three long toes. Just after that, more footprints turned up at the Sutarth home northwest of the town, on Dougherty Pike Road. 
Crow writes in his article that Mrs. Sudarth noticed that her dogs were acting nervously when she suddenly heard a high-pitched howl near the house. Her husband grabbed a flashlight and went out to investigate. They lived in a very rural area, and it wasn't uncommon to hear bears or wildcats near the property. He checked for tracks all over, and finally found tracks in the soft garden soil, which was where he found large, three-toed prints, unlike any track he'd ever seen. He went back in the house and called his friend Clyde Penrod, asking him to come over and take a look at the tracks. Penrod had seen the tracks at the Robbins farm and wanted to take a look and make a plaster cast. He later told Crow, It was 20 to 25 feet from the tracks to anything else. I can't understand how they were made. There were no other tracks leading to or away from the garden. Even if they were left by a person who was trying to leave fake tracks to scare everyone, he couldn't have gotten to and from the garden without making tracks himself. It had rained the night before, and the ground was soft. The next day, August 4, 1972, four boys, including Edgar Harrison's two sons, were fishing north of town at the Salt River when they saw what appeared to be a large, dark animal swimming across the water. The Louisiana Press Journal reported that they were quietly fishing for perch and catfish around four in the afternoon when one of the boys, Ernest Shade, noticed a dark object in the river. He didn't pay much attention to it at first, but when he noticed it moving, he mentioned it to the other boys, and they began to watch it. The object, one of the boys said, and he called it an object, was moving in a definite line against the current upstream. It appeared to be some type of animal with a head bigger than a human head and shoulders that were sticking out of the water. The boys thought it might be a bear, but they weren't close enough to be sure. One of the boys said, We looked at it until it went out of sight, and then we left. Keep in mind that two of the boys had witnessed the creature close up just a week or so before, but they were carefully holding back their words now, as it was likely that, that many in the community were mocking all those reports and putting it down as panic talk. I'm looking at a picture now of the track that was cast by Clyde Penrod, and it's definitely unusual, but very clear, showing three toes and a large, well-defined heel. By that first week of August, the repeated sightings had created a media storm, with over a dozen newspapers from three states reporting the events in detail. And once the UPI wire picked it up, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the National Enquirer, and even the Wall Street Journal picked up the story. The creature was given the names the Pike County Monster, the Missouri Monster, the Mystery Beast, the Hairy Biped, and the Thing. Later, out of this came Momo, short for Missouri Monster and Missouri, and that stuck. As the story traveled, so did the number of people who wanted to see it, and they began pouring into the tiny town of Louisiana that August, filling what few restaurants, bars, lodges, and shops that there were. At first, the townspeople of Louisiana were taken aback by all the notoriety, but soon they adapted, and signs went up outside various business establishments touting monster-sized burgers and monster deals. The local J.C. Penney's and Gibson's got into the act, announcing monster savings on everything from clothing to food. The Wall Street Journal decided to do an article of how the strange sightings had affected the town's business, and they called Louisiana's town clerk Jean Hollows and asked her how business was, and she confirmed that it had definitely put the little town of Louisiana on the map. But Police Chief Ward had his hands full trying to deal with the newcomers, some of whom were coming armed and eager to get a shot at the monster. A group of 20 men had showed up at the local hotel restaurant with newspaper articles announcing the monster search and said they were going to do some monster hunting. They asked one of the waitresses where Star Hill was and said they were going up there to hunt the monster. 
"'She called one of Ward's deputies, "'who came over quickly and told the men to leave town. "'No hunting allowed. "'There was too great a chance that one of the locals might get shot "'or that these strangers to the area could get lost or shoot each other. "'But that didn't stop others from coming. "'Dozens of armed men were swarming Marzolf Hill "'and the surrounding woods with itchy trigger fingers. "'They were breaking fences, tromping all over private property, "'and shooting at what? No one knew.' but with every shot the locals feared somebody's livestock, or worse yet, kids might be the target. But most of the kids were ordered to stay out of the woods until the whole thing died down, and the horses were brought in, but the livestock were left to graze in open fields. In daylight, at least, they should have been safe. But no, two hunters shot a farmer's bull, thinking it was the monster. The owner was furious and called the police, but whoever had shot the bull was long gone, and no one was stepping up to claim the deed. Chief Ward was worried that someone was going to get killed. The woods surrounding the town were full of dense briars and brush, as well as venomous snakes. Add to this caves and cliffs and rocky outcrops where one wrong step could cause death. His deputy spent most of the day answering calls of sightings and checking them out. Soon Chief Ward was placing roadblocks leading from the town to Marzov Hill. A pair of UFO investigators, their names Hayden C. Hughes and Daniel Garcia, showed up asking Ward permission to go up on the hill, and once Ward was sure that the hunters had been removed, he granted them permission. They went up, stayed the night, found nothing, but managed to get their faces on camera the following day at the Harrison residence, where they reported that the creature was a large hairy biped with a pumpkin-sized head and large glowing orange eyes, which of course nobody had ever reported before, because long hair covered the face of whatever it was, if it had a face. Hughes went on to say, It could be from outer space, and then also admitted that it could be nothing. But he had let the cat out of the bag, and the large creature with orange glowing eyes became the feature for every newspaper artist out there. In all fairness, it must be said that today's MUFON investigators would never have tried to get that kind of publicity, which is harmful to the investigation and ruins all credibility. But this was 1972, and Hughes and Garcia announced that they were attached to the IUFOB, the International Unidentified Flying Object Bureau. I can't find mention of that one anywhere. Possibly they made it up. By the way, in searching for that, I read that the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI have just now declassified a large trove of documents concerning UFOs. I haven't had time to dig into it, but it sounds very interesting. If you have time... Search your National Archives and you're bound to come up with some stories. I wish they would do the same for the Earhart files. I'm waiting. Another day, I hope. One writer-researcher named Lyle Blackburn has done a lot of research into the Momo incident and documented his findings in his book, Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster. What is unique about Blackburn's work is that he found a number of similar incidents prior to and and after the Louisiana-Missouri monster sightings and all happened within a 120-mile radius of the town of Louisiana. He also investigated UFO and Bigfoot sightings and found a number of them that directly corresponded to the 1972 summer incidents in Missouri. Other incidents were reported to the BFRO, or Bigfoot Field Research Organization. Again, as we've explained in previous episodes, these guys take a no-nonsense attitude to what they do. All that follows right after these sponsor messages. And now we return to our story. One of those earlier incidents was the one involving Joan Mills and Mary Ryan, which pretty much went unnoticed in 1971. It should be noted, however, 
that the pull-off they stopped at is only two miles from Marsolf Hill. And there were others. In the summer of 1970, an unknown creature was reported to the Pike County Sheriff's Department by a witness who preferred to remain unidentified. On June 30, 1972, less than two weeks before the Harrison House incident, two men fishing at night along the Culver River south of the town saw a large man-type creature walking armpit level across the river toward them. He was walking almost effortlessly, despite the current. He emerged and walked up the bank about 150 feet from the two men, one of them whom, upon seeing him, scrambled quickly back up an embankment. When the creature, for it did not look like an ordinary man, began to walk toward the remaining witness, he too fled up the embankment. The noise he made apparently startled the creature, which turned and scrambled up the hillside about a hundred feet from the men's original position. The two men eventually contacted a ranger, who agreed to return to the river with them to help them retrieve their fishing gear. They pointed out where the creature had emerged from the water, and the ranger got a close look at the huge, three-toed footprints that the creature had left in the sand. It wasn't until later that researchers connected those footprints with the plaster cast made by Clyde Penrod. That location is about 30 miles south of the town of Louisiana. Another sighting was made very close to the Culver Rivers I just mentioned. This one closer to the town of Foley, still on the river. They hadn't come forward before because they didn't think anyone would believe them. A woman related the following story to John Schussler, a former aerospace engineer who by the 1990s was working as a regional director for the UFO network. She said her husband was fishing near Foley, Missouri, when he saw a large shaggy creature come out of the water. When he told the story at home, the family teased him mercilessly for over a year, but that stopped when the 1972 incidents occurred in the town of Louisiana. Twenty miles south of that location, two teenage girls witnessed the creature walking outside the town of O'Fallon. That was on July 24th, 1972. But creature sightings weren't the only things people were seeing and hearing in 1971 and 2. We know that Edgar Harrison and a group of church people witnessed the strange lights that came over Marsolf Hill. We know a large number of people described the creature as having a loud growl. On the night of July 26th, witnesses in the town of Louisiana saw a fireball land atop a large tree near the railroad crossing at the north end of River Road and not far from where old Ellis Miner saw the creature in the dark out front of his home. On Sunday, July 13th, Lois and Ernest Shade saw lights just above a bluff, again at the north end of River Road. It was orange at first, then changed to red and gray. They also saw a craft which was disc-shaped, which they watched as it sat hovering still above the trees for a couple of hours, until it gave off a red glow and then headed straight up into the air where it disappeared. On August 5th, Pat Howard and a friend, who had volunteered to keep watch overnight in Harrison's backyard, heard a strange voice say, I'll take a cup of your coffee. They jumped up, expecting to see a neighbor or a friend pop out from behind a tree. But there was nobody. They searched and found nothing. It was as if it had been a disembodied voice, and it apparently had a sense of humor. All you or I could think of is that it was a prank. But who pulled it off and how remained a mystery to the witnesses. On July 11th, the same day that the creature appeared on the Harrison property, many UFO incidents were reported along the Mississippi River Basin from Illinois southward through Missouri. A UFO was reported that night in Decatur, Illinois, 100 miles to the east of the town of Louisiana. On July 14th, green and white lights were reported not only in Louisiana, but in New Canton, Illinois, 13 miles to the north, and on July 21st, in Bowling Green, Missouri, 
A housewife said she observed two balls of fire land in a cow pasture near her home. Later she smelled a nauseating odor followed by a series of grunting and screaming noises which were also heard by her entire family. The people who research the files at the BFRO will tell you that most Bigfoot sightings do not involve strange lights, but there are a significant number of sightings that do, and the ones that do can involve fireballs coming from an unidentified flying object. Those fireballs hit the earth or the trees. Screaming noises are sometimes heard. Dramatic encounters with large ape-like creatures come from that, which leads us to one far-out possibility that these creatures are somehow being launched from alien ships. I know this all sounds crazy, but how else can you explain this stuff? It reminds me of the paranormal activity that was going on at Skin Rocker Ranch for a long while in New Mexico, as if that locale was somehow a portal to another dimension. Maybe somehow the Mississippi River Valley was being used as a portal for those few years back in the 70s. Our knowledge of different dimensions is nothing other than speculation at this time, and we can only guess, but it is very strange stuff. If you want to run with the crowd that says all of the 1972 sightings were just a prank pulled off by some kids or a crazy farmer, you can be my guest. But then you'll have to answer the following questions to yourself. How did they pull off the creature sightings 30 miles apart over a period of two years? If it was kids, how did they create a costume at least six feet tall and be able to hide from hunting parties in heavy brush and timber? And how did they launch fireballs over Marzolf Hill? How did they wade across deep creeks and a river wearing an ape outfit? How did they recreate the noxious smell of dead animals that penetrated the air within 100 yards of the witnesses? How did they pull off the costume in broad daylight within 20 feet of a number of witnesses? How did they cause fear in dogs that hadn't even seen them yet? How did they appear in Illinois and Pennsylvania and other towns in the Missouri? I'm sorry, none of that adds up to me. I've become a firm believer in the fact that there are primates we haven't yet classified, and that they're only here or seen at certain times. Someday I believe we'll get the answer to some or all of those questions. Getting back to David Paulides' missing 411 stories, it's true that hundreds of people have gone missing in broad daylight, many times within shouting distance of their companions. Search parties fail to come up with a scrap of clothing or a trace of the person's belongings. Some people have disappeared over cliffs, and nothing was found below. Articles of their clothing, in some cases, especially pairs of boots or shoes, appear months later in broad daylight on top of rocks in plain sight where search parties have long since passed. It leaves you with a feeling that there is much to our world and other dimensions which coexist with ours of which we're just unaware. And it's something for us not to be afraid of, but to try to figure out. Thanks for joining me in the search. And thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Be sure to check out our other six podcasts, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and 1001 Radio Days. All of those are available places like Google Play or the Apple Podcast app, which is found at the Apple Store, and it's free. And subscribe to all of our shows at no cost. We're supported by advertisers who sponsor with us and by our Patreon supporters, who support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And to them we owe a great debt of gratitude, and they also receive many episodes ad-free both new ones which we call our early bird specials, and archived. We love reviews, and we have a few new ones to share with you. 
The first one, five stars. Fantastic. Plowing through all these episodes. What took me so long to find this? Great and varied topics with awesome delivery. The thing I like most is that you can tell that John has a real interest in the stories and is thrilled to be sharing them with us. I love it, and I've been telling all my friends. Thank you, Robert Hammond. That one from Hellbilly Outlaw, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, five stars, a good man. Keep up the good work. No Trace, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, it was interesting to listen to. You know, five stars. The Irish guy cracks me up so much. All I remember him saying is, you know, repeatedly in such a thick accent. Great show, comedy. I'm listening, okay? Apple Podcast, Great Britain. And this one, five stars, superb. Best podcast there is. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to a variety of podcasts, and the 1001 Family of Podcasts rank as my most listened to. It all started here with 1001 Heroes. Many of the stories gained my interest by title alone. And many times the stories are ones I want to get to the bottom of, even if I didn't know about it before listening. John is very easy to listen to, and the podcast is always informative. Great for medium to long car rides. Down from American Art 3B3, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all very much for taking the time to write us these reviews. It's appreciated and it helps new listeners find us. We also receive direct messages sometimes at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. And we appreciate those contacts as well. All of our shows are available 24-7, and we're available at a number of podcast host sites. All you have to do is search Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever, or whatever search tool you use, and you'll find our 1001 shows. We also have a website that contains all the episodes we do from all our shows, and that's 1001storiespodcast.com. 1001storiespodcast.com. Give that a try if you want access to every episode we do, and you'll find a wide variety of different types of shows. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thanks for joining us with this episode. We'll be back with a new one next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.